and welcome to Cynical Talk. This is a weekly roundup between your co-hosts, myself, Thomas Brancato, and myself, George Shaft, where we will be exploring a variety of topics loosely related to MI Cynic and just seeing what happens. It's going to be a more laid back approach to the MI Cynic standard episodes. And it is a chance for me and George to sound off a little bit more on our own hot takes, on our own opinions and the beauty of conversation. In the spirit of MI Cynic, George, I thought it would be interesting and entertaining in equal measure to list down and briefly speak about some famous sort of points of conflict or interest between the monarchy and espionage. And so I've been digging around to see which figures in history, um, which spies in history, have had dealings with the monarchy. I was quite surprised to find that there are quite a few. And a lot You're of surprised them, by this. I am surprised by this. I am. I didn't. I didn't know this was the case. But a lot of them are actually centered around uh, World War Two. Some going before that. But I want to mention uh, some of the cases which I found uh, really interesting to you, George, and to, to see if you if you agree with me um, that these are really interesting cases. So the first one I've got for you is Charles Edward, Duke of Saxe Coburg who was born in 1884 in Surrey. He was the grandson of Victoria. He went to study in Eton, and then he went to Germany by the year 1900. He supported Imperial Germany in World War I, but then because of that was stripped of his titles uh, and thereafter named head of the German Red Cross. Now, here's the interesting thing. He spied on his own royal family for the Nazi regime in Germany uh, in the lead up to World War II. And in 1938, he met with King George VI in a private meeting. And what we know of him is that after the war, he was imprisoned in Germany um, by, I suppose, the the West German government that uh, replaced the, the Nazi regime. And he was not the only one. Because Princess Stephanie von Hohenlohe, which I think is definitely one of the most interesting cases that I have read, uh, would join him in this regard as a, as a, as a royal spy. Although her, her story is slightly different because she married into um, the, the royal title Ho- Hohenlohe, which I believe is a, is a German uh, or was a German uh, princely uh, sort of um, family. Uh, and... Anyway, she married a a Hungarian duke or a prince of some sort, and later on had an apartment in Mayfair. Uh, Fast forwarding a few years, I believe she she divorced the original uh, Hohenlohe prince that she married, but retained the titles. So she did everything right, and then she bought herself an apartment in Mayfair, which became a hangout for aristocrats in England who were sympathetic to the Nazi and her flat became sort of this, this meeting ground for the London Nazis. Hitler called her his, and I quote, dear princess. She arranged the Duke of Windsor's 1937 visit to Germany and Lord Halifax's meeting with a high profile Nazi official. In 1940, she moved to the United States, claiming that Europe was becoming too hot for her, too much drama. 
and she was spied on by the uh, the FBI and uh, the CIA anyway by the American administration had had her eyes on her and she's quoted as having said there was a moment when I stood at the very center of things by which she means uh, European high level diplomacy and uh, this she ran from a London apartment in Mayfair uh, having married into a, a, a royal title so I find her story extremely interesting, not least of which because we're talking about a, a female spy at a time in which it was very likely and very difficult for a woman to to attain a position of power uh, due to misogynistic views that might have been rampant back then. But also because of uh, a, a relatively lower class person having risen to the very top of European politics, diplomacy, war. Uh, and uh, somehow living to tell the tale. So a very interesting person. And these are two cases of royal espionage in the lead up to World War II. Both of them being cases of royal espionage for Nazi Germany, which, I mean, in some, depending on how uncharitable you want to be and depending on how you might want to view it, could be argued to have gone all the way up to the top. You mentioned uh, King Edward VIII earlier and how he abdicates the, fr- the throne in favour of marrying an American woman. But he also didn't hide the fact that he quite liked Adolf Hitler and he quite liked the fact, you know, he obviously he was more, you know, to do with his you know, country, you know, in, in the, during the war, he, you know, he, had, he was all for the war effort, but he was very open on the, on the whole, yeah, no, fascism sounds like something that's not a terrible idea. And there's, a, there's an infamous photograph that circulates around of uh, the queen when she was a very, very small child being told you know, to practice the Nazi salute. It was, it's an infamous photograph, you know, but yet yeah, it's there. There's all of these connections. I mean, I believe King Edward as well had ties with Oswald Mosley, who they were on a friendly basis. I'm not sure to which extent. However, you're right in pointing out that there are uncomfortable links, let's call them, between the royal family and fascism and Adolf Hitler's Nazi Germany. I don't know to which extent that would have been due to uh, let's say uh, an, an association or or an an approachment with fascist ideology that I find a little unsettling for obvious reasons, or how much has to do with a sort of a historic Anglo-German connection, which uh, because of the the Germanic line of of our monarchy, right? Because that they are they do come from Germany. Um, and that can be traced all the way back to Queen Victoria. So the German-speaking um, English aristocracy who, who who are royals, I mean, we we have that as part of our history. So there's, a, there's an obvious connection on that front. But also, because there was a time at the beginning of this century, uh, sorry, at the beginning of the 20th century, that England's place as France's ally was not so immediately obvious and there were high-level discussions which took place between Secretary for the Commonwealth, uh, Chamberlain, uh, Neville Chamberlain's father, uh, who was sort of chief diplomat in this regard of, of trying to forge European alliances 
that Britain had uh, at the time of declining empire. And so he led high-level discussions with Germany on Imperial Germany on more than one occasion, which has fallen through. But regardless, I think here we point to another example of where there were, um, let, let's say, there was a significant element of English society, not just the royals, who viewed Germany as the natural ally for Britain and who viewed France as an untrustworthy ally at best and a natural enemy uh, at worst. And Germany had the unique position on the world map in which they uh, stood between Russia and France and could hypothetically uh, fulfill the United Kingdom's historical ambition to keep Europe divided, right? That has always been a British sort of foreign policy or, or, or let's say grand foreign ambition towards Europe. Um, and so, and, and in this regard, you could argue that, uh, well, you know, the royal family might've been just simply following along a, the historical precedent by the ruling class of England, which never quite saw Germany as the be all end all natural enemy of England, more so when we have shared a similar uh, Protestant religion, uh, language, um, ethnicity, you name it. We have e even um, God Save the Queen, I believe, is, is actually a German melody uh, for their own uh, princes and, and kings. So, so there's, a, there's a deep connection there between England and Germany historically. Um, I think this is probably quite battered now, and uh, certainly during the Brexit referendum, you couldn't stop hearing about German cars. Uh, <laughs> But uh, anyway, back then in, in the mid-30s, I do believe that there should be good argument to, to, to believe that it, it was not necessarily Nazi sympathies, although it very well could have been, but rather simply uh, England or Britain rather trying to find whether France or Germany, uh, which one was the better ally. And there was a lot of uncertainty back then. That argument would be unfortunately, weakened by the fact that, by two sort of aspects. One is the pure theory, and that is, let's be very, very frank, the, I, no, the ideology behind monarchy is not a million miles away from the ideology of fascism. Both of them come from a point of view of there should be an authority at the top that is not elected and should have you know, some level of power over the rest of society. There are differences, of course, but they are, it's not that far off, certainly not as far off as communism, which was, of course, very, very much on a lot of people's minds. And before the, first, the Second World War, a lot of people, you know, in Britain and in France and in the rest of Europe, very much saw the idea of, Oh, a fascist state, you know, they'd say, oh, a fascist state's preferable because it's not like that communism thing that the Russians are doing. This is also something we saw borne out in other countries. For example, I mentioned earlier that Spain restored their monarchy after a fascist dictator took over. But he took, but Franco took over in a civil war where he was ostensibly fighting on the side of the royalists. The, you know, the, the sides are the nationalists and the republicans in the, in the Spanish Civil War. The, 
side that was beaten was the side that was arguing for democracy and many sections of it for the abolition of the monarchy. And the, the, the royalists, the Rexists, as they were known in the Spanish Civil War, were very happy to fight alongside the fascists during the Spanish Civil War. It's not just in Spain either. Uh, the, uh, the Tsar of, of Bulgaria, for example, Tsar Boris, was, had no problem signing up alongside Nazi Germany to actively fight in World War II against the Russians. The, uh, the Romanian monarchy as well had quite a few sympathies with the idea of you know, fascism. So I'd ultimately say it's probably close to the first argument of the two you put there, that the British monarchy was following a more general European trend of you know, ranging from, hey, these guys are saying something good, or yeah, these guys are not great, but they're, at least they're not the communists. Right, at least they're not the communists, which frankly also explains world history in the 50s and in the 60s, and certainly the American approach towards dictators in South America. So we also have to keep in mind that the full extent of the horrors of fascism were not well known until much later, after the end of World War II. Well, a lot of them hadn't happened yet. A lot of them hadn't the, happened yet. The, and for a lot of Europeans, perhaps the British royal family included, I'm not sure, uh, anything was better than the horrors coming out of Russia. And uh, and the real threat of the USSR and the, the rapid uh, sort of uh, ab, um, annexation of nearby countries and into communism. Um, and so um, it, it was a difficult time in world history. And I think, regardless, we will never... We might never know the full extent of the affiliations and the sympathies and the private thoughts of British royals towards Adolf Hitler's regime. And interestingly enough, there was a double spy called Anthony Blunt. And I've been researching his his, uh, sort of a little bit of his biography for our episode today. He was the chief arts curator slash historian uh, for the royal family. Uh, But he was a double agent. He worked for both MI5 and the KGB, uh, the Soviet secret services. And he was one of the infamous Cambridge Five, along with Kim Felby, for example. He had a close relationship with Queen Mary or the Queen Mother and uh, he was put under the charge as surveyor of the king's pictures after World War II by the king. He, Mr. Anthony Blunt, had dirt on the royal family. Why? Because he was investigating Nazi sympathies of royals after World War II at the behest of the KGB. But it was never released. His findings were never released. And in fact, he received a knighthood. Uh, in 1956, I believe. Um, yes, 1956, despite the royal family knowing his KGB connections. So my question there, pure speculation is, did his knighthood convince him otherwise of releasing the material that he may have had on King Edward and others, other royals and the sympathies uh, towards Nazi Germany? I don't know. Because we do know that the findings have never been released. Yeah. And that he spent two years, apparently, traveling around Europe, collecting evidence. And this was not some slouch. 
this was a highly accomplished academic and historian uh, who quite obviously was able to uh, to lead the life of a double agent and somehow get a knighthood out of it. So <laughs> quite clever. Yeah, got to give some credit there. Quite a clever spy. So there might be a dossier somewhere out there in classified uh, folders uh, which reveal the extent of the the royal family's connection or the let's say the English aristocracy's connection to Adolf Hitler's Germany. And every time so they think about declassifying it, someone looks at the dossier and goes, oh, yeah, no, this stays classified. No, yeah, this stays classified. <laughs> and because this is the interesting thing about the monarchy yes. that I think we are seeing a bit with Prince Andrew is that a, a stain on one of them is a stain on all of them. And it becomes this massive PR uh, not even campaign, endeavour, I don't know what word you might, might call it, to maintain the whole family apparatus as pristine as possible. And ultimately, no family, when subjected to that level of scrutiny, could ever come out as perfect. Mine certainly. When it was not, yeah, it was not Prince Andrew, it was Prince Harry. And his, you know, in a very, you can almost call it analogous self-situation, married Meghan Markle, and it was controversial. I got a lot of flack for it, mm. perhaps unfairly, mm. but he did. And ended up, and he ended up dipping out. Abdicating. I don't, yeah. Right. I, don't want to, I don't want to deal with this. And yeah. ended up living in Canada, where he still lives to this day. Yes, but the tabloids will never have enough of the um, the, the gossip trail, and so when he comes, uh, him and um, and Meghan Markle come back uh, for an event or so. Of course, the the tabloid goes on full uh, full media mode, and um, it will. It, I think it will always be fodder for the tabloid press. Um, and you know, as long as it's that, you know, the the likelihood and the chances of of them digging up something does come out. It, it's inevitable that as the world becomes more interconnected and as more people have smartphones that are able to take pictures and videos and all the rest of this and email leaks and blah blah blah, it will become increasingly harder to maintain this pristine, clean, uh, whatever you want to call it, outdated standard by which they hold the royal family. Ultimately, that's something we've been seeing across a lot of institutions. You know, it's been getting harder and harder and harder to maintain a facade of being perfect and be and you know, be of being this above everyone else. We saw it with celebrities, uh, you know, act in music and in movies, and seeing it in politics, politicians. So it's inev- and we've also seen it with the monarchy, not just the British monarchy, but in monarchies in other countries. As I've been discussing, you know, in Spain, where the monarchy has been in hot water for their uh, for their financial dealings, for example. How we and, deal with that going forward? Yeah, you know, ultimately, any 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 body, any institution such as our monarchy that commands so much public uh, admiration at respect or anyway, attention in any form that that comes will always, will always be of national interest. And so often one of the sort of the apologies that is, that is given when one explains the monarchy to 
to a monarchy apologist is, well, it's ceremonial or the, it, she's just a figurehead queen in the extent that, that this is supposed to mean the monarchy is not a political vehicle. And whilst I would argue that Queen Elizabeth II has done an admirable role at maintaining this, this strict, very disciplined neutrality, I would argue the monarchy is anything but apolitical, much as it tries to be. Anything that commands so much public attention and, and respect and, and is so deeply associated with, with uh, the British culture or, or however you want to call it, will always be a political animal any way you want to slice it. And to this extent, that's my last little snippet for today, George, is an example of espionage against the British monarchy by none other than the British government. So it seems that declassified uh, files have revealed that MI5, during the lead up to World War II, did in fact spy on the King of England. And it started when Edward VIII was but a prince, and his father, King George, was a bit concerned about some of the jewellery and lavish gifts that Edward was displaying. And so he, the king was worried that this could potentially be blackmail used against him. Uh, and so to that extent, uh, he ordered uh, the secret services, his secret services, by the way, his majesty's secret service, to engage on just a little lighthearted espionage on his son, just you know, to make sure the boy's growing up all right. Well, it just so happened that King George died, and then King Edward would assume uh, the the king the the crown. And by this time, MI five and their operation had expanded to the point that they had bugged all of the royal residences, and. It was during one of the telephone conversations that King Edward had with his brother, in which King Edward said, I don't think I can do this. I'm in love with uh, Walter Simpson, uh, and uh, I can't possibly choose between the, the crown. And anyway, his, his whole uh, dilemma, let's say, and his decision to abdicate, apparently MI5 knew uh, before the rest of the country did, because... They bugged and listened into the conversation. And it wasn't a sort of some overzealous, uh, low-ranking rank, uh, security officer, uh, sorry, intelligence officer who thought, oh, this will get me a promotion. No, no. It came from the prime minister, the order to bug these phones. So it went all the way up to the very top of government to um, bug the royal residences and to effectively to commit espionage and surveillance against our own royal family. Never, as the play Hamilton teaches us, never underestimate the power of being in the room where it happens. And if you've got to put a bug into the wall to get to be there, then so be it. I can only imagine what kind of conversations would come out if they were to bug Queen Elizabeth II's uh, royal residence. Um. <laughs> they would probably find a lot more, sorry for interrupting, but they would probably find going back to where you started the discussion here, uh, find a lot of discussions where she would be influencing government behind the scenes. The, you know, being in the room where it happens works both for that, for bugging the walls, but then also the fact that every week the monarch has a meeting with the prime minister. And if you're meeting the prime minister, 
every week and you're sitting there having tea and coffee with him, you're going to start talking and you're going to have an influence on him you know, at the moment. And it's a, it's a bit of, I find it a bit of a fiction when it's put forward this idea of, oh, the, the monarchy is completely apolitical. They have, you know, they have no say whatsoever on legislation. Yes, on an official basis, they have no say on, on legislation. But then on an official basis, neither do the spouses of government ministers, neither do their staff, neither do civil servants. And yes, minister taught us that they very, very much do. And that's what the whole scandal with, the, as they call them, the spider letters, were with Prince Charles, where he was in private correspondence with various ministers and politicians, writing, oh, it was lovely to see you on Thursday. By the way, I think this is what environmental policy should be. But, you know, just my word for it. Looking forward to playing golf with you on, on Sunday, that sort of thing. Yes, and I think that happens quite often. And I would agree with you that uh, despite uh, arguments to the contrary, it is a political institution fundamentally. And it is one, and that makes it one of national interest, not just for our secret services, but perhaps for other secret services as well. And so then you enter into counter uh, espionage. And, uh, and so I imagine Buckingham Palace is, uh, <laughs> has bugs all around it. And they also exert a high level of influence, not just in the UK, but also, George, I would add, worldwide. The Queen has is respected and the Commonwealth is still an, a, a thing by, in which she has a lot of sway and influence. Um, so it, it is, it's an incredibly important institution. Uh, I see it as difficult and very time-consuming process to remove the monarchy from Britain. Ultimately, I personally, I'm not so convinced it, it would be for the best. However, I think that naturally this process is going to happen by itself, more so after Queen Elizabeth II passes. Um, because, the, the, you know, change is inevitable. And perhaps the United Kingdom has been, has been exceptional in the regard that it still has this highly decorated monarchy. However, I do think the historical process will will do what it always does. I mean, the power of the monarchy as a public relations symbol for Britain, and also sometimes even a policy pusher for Britain, is second to none, as I as I argued before. I mean, Prince Philip, you know, the Queen's uh, deceased now husband, uh, literally had a religion around his personality you know, on you know, some island in the Pacific Ocean where they sort of cargo culted his image and his idea, the idea of Prince Philip, the saviour of, you know, whatever. Uh, but then also in real policy, there's speculation or even evidence that the monarchies had a lot of impact there. For example, uh, Saudi Arabia letting women drive cars. The, you know, it didn't really happen until after the Queen invited the Saudi king into a jeep with her and she drove around off roads in, in the, with him in there. And you know, the, the Queen is uh, 
very much an accomplished driver. Uh, she drove uh, vehicles in the for the army in the Second World War, and so she was happy to go. Oh yeah, the king of Saudi Arabia is in the car for me. All right, let's go. Off for a whirl. <laughs> I mean, as one a, as uh, as one does in the presence of the king of Saudi Arabia. I mean, it, the British monarchy's uh, you know, influence in other countries is so powerful that when Grenada, um, a Caribbean island nation, had a communist revolution, they made a point of staying in the Commonwealth. And so there was a three-year period in the 1980s where the where the current Queen of England was also the queen of a communist country aligned with the Soviet Union. Oh, God. I can only imagine uh, what must have been her response to that. But um, that's a great snippet. I do like that one, George. But um, look, I think we've we've gone through some, some interesting espionage stories, some great fun facts of the monarchy, and a, and a good discussion on the, the place of the monarchy within today's United Kingdom, but also uh, internationally. And the point of of these, what will be weekly uh, cynical talks between us is not necessarily to get to the bottom of any subject, which would require more time than we have, but simply to give you, our audience, a chance to to hear the inner workings of uh, my meetings with uh, with George on a variety of, of interesting and related topics. And we don't necessarily get anywhere. Sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. But we hope, regardless, that you will enjoy the journey with us. And please feel free to remind us, is there anything we got wrong? Is there anything we missed? Is there anything you'd like to hear about for the next episode? Is this subject worth digging into again? Let us know. Any final thoughts then to take this home then? Closing thoughts, George, are that the monarchy is a staple of of British society. Even in the 21st century, we don't know how much longer this will continue to thrive. We will have to wait until the next king uh, is is crowned. But ultimately, I think uh, the next king will be inheritor of of a proud tradition, a proud culture that has achieved a lot of great things and that has the capacity to continue doing good in the world. And so perhaps we should invest in in that and say support the very best that it can do. Yeah, fair enough. Yours, George? My final thought says monarchy is one of the is one of two issues where I can never permanently make up my mind. Ultimate on a pure uh, sort of ideological basis, perhaps, I would tend towards thinking that the monarchy is in some way not preferable. But then I would also flip back on that for the exact same reason. Monarchy is ultimately for British society a sign of stability. It is a it's one unmoving, unchanging, or so the image is, institution that no matter what happens will always be there to, you know, in some way reassure everyone that it's all right, the system still works. I think that its power both in politics, domestically and internationally, is enormous. And that is an institution very, very much worth keeping tabs on if you want to know a thing or two about the world, as every spy institution in the world obviously does. Of course. Well, and with that, George, we will have to wrap up our episode on the monarchy. And if you liked this episode and you're keen to find out more, 
drop us a comment and subscribe to MI Cynic under your favorite platforms. You can find us at www.micynic.com, as well as on LinkedIn, YouTube, Facebook, and more. Reach out to George Shaft or myself, Thomas Brincaso, your co-hosts on your favorite social media platforms. We'd be more than happy to take in any questions, suggestions, recommendations that you might have, even criticisms. We are uh, more than happy to be completely destroyed online. So please um, write to us, let us know. And uh, we look forward as well to having you drop in for the next week's episode. And we hope to be doing this on a regular basis as well. Don't we, George? Oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, Make sure if you send any messages to me on your favorite social medias to be extra rude, not for, not for any reason, just because I take perverse pleasure in it. <laughs> <laughs> all right, then. And with that, we wish you all an incredible rest of your day. And until next time, this is MI Cynic signing off. Goodbye. And that wraps up this week's Cynical Talk episode. If you've enjoyed this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you could share this with your family and friends. If you haven't, let us know why on our website at www.micynic.com or over at Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, and more. You can find us over at Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and wherever else you find your podcasts. This is your co-host, Thomas Boncaso, and I hope you'll be joining us next week for our next episode of Cynical Talk. Until then, take care, stay safe, and stay cynical. Thank you.